welcome back to Banter, a podcast brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. I'm Matt Winesett. And I'm Max Frost. We have a wonderful guest today. It's Joe Ricketts, the founder of Ameritrade and the author of a new book, The Harder You Work, The Luckier You Get. It's subtitled An Entrepreneur's Memoir, and that is what it is. It's the story of how Joe Ricketts became a wildly successful business person. We had a terrific conversation with him. The book is totally worth a read. And without further ado, here is Mr. Ricketts. Mr. Ricketts, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. My pleasure. So we've had some impressive and eclectic guests on the show, journalists, business leaders, ambassadors, but I don't think we've ever had a owner of a baseball franchise, so this is a big day for us. You are here to speak with Robert Doerr at an event about your new book, The Harder You Work, The Luckier You Get, An Entrepreneur's Memoir. It's a pretty amazing story, so I'd like to just start at the beginning if we can. Uh, you're best known now as the Cubs owner and founder and CEO of Ameritrade, but at least my friends know you as the Cubs owner. But how did you get your start? I mean, you grew up in rural Nebraska, I think, right? I did grow up in, in uh, rural Nebraska, which meant I got to see people that really were entrepreneurs. They did their own thing. My father owned a uh, building business, a construction built houses, and so I got to know electricians, plasters, plumbers, all people that owned their own businesses and was exposed to that way of life early in a young age. And my parents always encouraged work. They never encouraged me to go out for sports. They never discouraged, but they didn't encourage. But they always encouraged me to uh, work and to save my money. And and I got to doing that to the point where I, I really did enjoy it. So, you know, I don't want to spoil the whole book for anyone who does plan to read it. But can you just give a sense of kind of how you got to where you are from where you began? Because the story really is, is incredible. Well, it's difficult to do that in a, in a short period of time. But, but basically, I went to work for Dunn Bradstreet Street as a credit reporter and uh, went from small town to small town in southeast Nebraska and southwest Iowa and just walked down the street calling on individual businesses. I had the credit report from the previous year and would talk to the owners about how things were going. So I could write their credit report. So I had to get to understand their business. And I, I really came to uh, admire these people that started their own business and took their own risk and were their own person. They could do their own thing, go their own way. And I uh, kind of fell in love with the free enterprise system at that time and always wanted to own my own business, but I didn't have any money. So I didn't know how I could own my own business. And then I saw an article in a magazine about uh, stockbrokers that worked on commission and made a lot of money. I said, oh, that's closest thing to having your own businesses I can think of, you know, uh, being on commission. I like that idea. And uh, I like the idea of being associated with uh, the securities markets. So that's kind of how it evolved. And I uh, applied for a job at a brokerage firm. And while I was working for the brokerage firm, negotiated commissions became the mandate of the government. And so I said, now I'm not only going to have to talk to my customers about a good investment idea, I'm going to have to talk to them about how much money I am going to charge. And that uh, was not very pleasant. And uh, so we stumbled into the idea of uh, discount brokers. My, my, my partner, Bob Perlman, and myself, why, why don't we be with them instead of trying to defend ourselves here at a full-service brokerage firm? And so that's how the idea started. Now, did we know anything about what we were doing? Heavens, no. We just had a dream. We just knew we wanted to do it. In fact, we went into the um, trust department of the Omaha National Bank, which is gone now. And uh, asked them if they would clear our trades. 
And they said, no. And we said, why not? They said, we don't know what that means. (laughs) And we said, well, we don't either. But the conversation went on and the trust officer said, you know, you might go across the street and, and talk to a small brokerage. Uh, firm that is thinking about closing their doors. And so uh, we went over to uh, talk to those folks. And one thing led to another. They had all the registrations that it would take us a couple of years to get. And uh, we uh, recapitalized and formed a new firm and uh, started off uh, offering discount brokerage in uh, Omaha. So you had the dream of this company that was your own. You had the drive to work hard all day, every day. How did you actually go about, though, getting the funding to get this thing off the ground? Well, each of us put in $12,500 to capitalize it at $50,000. And in fact, it was kind of funny. We had to send out our financial statements to our customers every six months. And uh, one day, a customer called up and he said, I just thought I'd tell you that you left three zeros off of your net worth. <laughs> we said, no, no, we didn't leave any zeros <laughs> off. That's really our, what our net worth uh, is. So that was our funding. Now, we took out just a small amount so we could leave the earnings in the company to make it grow. So, uh, you know, we were living very, very frugally. My wife and I just didn't spend any extra money. So we got along just barely by the skin of our teeth. You know, our profits started out slow. I think we made $500 the first month. And it was one of those things where we enjoyed it. We enjoyed telling people about our business and could uh, really take care of the customers in the way that we wanted, in a way that we felt like they should be treated, uh, get a good execution and charge a low price, but don't talk to them about the do's or don'ts or the attributes of stock or their financial plan. Was that in contrast to a lot of other stock brokerages at the time? Well, prior to 1975, all the brokerage firms... um, charged big commissions and offered a lot of services, whether you wanted them or not. So let's say you inherited some American Telephone and Telegraph and you just wanted to sell it. You still had to pay the large commission. And and when I say large, it was maybe for 100 shares, $200 at a full service brokerage firm with $25 to us. So there was a big, big difference. So there was a motivation on the part of people to come to us that wanted to save money. We, We really came about that idea kind of slowly. We, My partner and I, Bob Perlman, were in Chicago. We ran into one of our friends from the trading at Dean Witter, and, he's, and we told him what we were uh, kicking around looking for, uh, something to do in the securities business after we went to negotiated commissions. Then he said, come with me. And he didn't say another word. We were in the Board of Trade building, and, and we got on the elevator. And when we got off, it was a dark, dingy uh, hallway. And there was a name uh, over uh, the door in Neon Lines and said John Rosen Company. We opened that door. It was a small room, three people inside, answering the phone as fast as they could. And as I listened, I heard the people accepting orders. Hmm. They didn't call out, and they didn't offer any other service except the execution. I said, how wonderful. This is, this is really what we want to do. We want to offer the service to the people that really will understand it. Excuse me. So we went back to Omaha with the idea that we were going to uh, really do this brokerage operation with the the firm across the uh, road. We were very excited about it. And we ran our first ad in the local paper. We thought we'd be a local business. And um, it was really pretty expensive for us, $500 on the weekend edition. And um, I was very excited to come to work on Monday morning and nothing happened. Hmm. We didn't get one response. What a big (laughs) <laughs> disappointment. So we said, what are we going to do? Well, 
There were a couple of firms in New York, as well as the one in Chicago, that was advertising the lower commissions. It was called negotiated commissions. And all of those ads appeared on the inside page of the Wall Street Journal on the back page. So we put our ad there and um, went with a little uh, piece of information that would provoke the customers like price. And, and it was executed on the exchange, New York Stock Exchange, and our phone started reading off the hook. So we knew then that we, we had the right thing. There was another piece to this that, that really kind of encouraged us, although I don't know if we should have taken so much encouragement. During the Cold War, the United States paid the local telephone company, Northwestern Bell, a lot of money to build the infrastructure into a communication system that would work around the world in case there was a hot war. Well, of course, there never was a hot war. So there's all this equipment setting there ready to be used and nobody was using it. So the phone company started to advertise something new at that time, which was 800 numbers, where somebody could call in and the receiver of the call paid for the telephone call. And the uh, prices for that long distance call were about 10 or 15% lower than if we were located in another city. And of course, we were pinching pennies. So that, that made a big difference. So we had companies move to town, like reservation companies, catalog companies. So we had some examples of using the 800 number. So we started to use that 800 number uh, and let people know that when they used that number, they were not paying for the phone call. And it uh, really did uh, help us out a lot. So instead of getting customers locally, we started getting customers from around the Midwest because we advertised in the Midwest edition of the Wall Street Journal. And then we saw that that was working so well, we went to the national edition. Now, an ad in the national paper is a lot more expensive than in a regional paper. So it was a big step for us, but it helped us bring in customers from all over the United States. Yeah. It is interesting, too, how the plan the plan was to be local, right? And then before you know it, the national is the more profitable route. So one of those cases where you might not expect it, but the unexpected becomes what happens. Is more well, I got to tell you, everything we did was like going into a new country that had never been explored before. All the decisions that we made it was had never really been done before. And we did a lot of things that were non-productive that didn't work. We just had to use trial and error and see what works. Well, th this is one of the things I enjoyed about the book. I mean, it's become kind of a, I mean, almost like a trope among left-leaning or some socialist politicians now that it's like, once you make a business, you're just extracting rent from it. And that's it. You have the business, you're going to do it. I mean, the book, it's a struggle. And the whole, the whole, the whole thing is a struggle just to keep surviving. I mean, you never know. I mean, there's a time even later on Maybe at the eighty-seven, maybe late eighties. Yeah, you're saying I th you thought that was it. For most people, they would have said, you know, you already got that point. It's easy, just coast. Obviously not. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's important. Just well, the people that think the way you just described don't understand, or they underestimate competition. Yeah. No matter what product or service or what line of business you're in, in a free enterprise system, you've always got somebody coming to try to compete to take your business away. So you got to be running all the time. You just don't start a business and have it do well. You got to work at it all the time. Well, and similarly, though, you also talk about regulations and kind of the, the way the whole business came to be was by taking off regulations that were protecting businesses. Very important uh, scheme. Many years ago, back in the 1700s, the few merchants that were in the brokerage business got together under the famous Buttonwood tree in Manhattan to establish the organization that would become eventually the New York Stock Exchange. And they, uh, part of the agreement among themselves was a, a, a way that they had to operate. And one of them was they had to charge a certain commission and nothing less. 
And that was necessary when they got started. But of course, as the next couple of hundred years evolved, they continued with that commission that everybody in the industry used, and, uh, but they didn't need it. It was protecting them. And, and so under pressure from uh, the uh, Congress, the Justice Department, the SEC, they were told, the securities industry was told, hey, this is in restraint of trade. You, you, it's against the antitrust laws. You got you to gotta let people uh, negotiate for their own commissions. And that was called negotiated trades. Well, our competitors, the full-service brokerage firms, tried to demean us and, and talk about us in derogatory ways. And so they called it a discount, which meant something less. And we were never going to overcome that. So we just had to pick up that word and put a good reputation behind it. It's funny how that happens a lot. I think capitalism was actually a term invented by Marxists and then yeah. it just became adopted. Same with, I think, neocons was originally a term by a socialist journalist and the neocons just for, the, all right, well, you meant it as a derogatory thing, but we'll, we'll accept it and go with it. You also, in this book, talk about you took on so much risk. I mean, I, my palms got sweaty just reading about it because I, I, th- I, I don't know if I could see myself doing that. Do you sense that there's still as much of an entrepreneurial culture and like a risk-taking culture in America today? Well, I don't know if I can answer that question very well, but I one of the reasons I did write the book was because I felt that the number of new businesses that are getting started in the United States relative to the number of businesses that are going out is too low. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of frustrated entrepreneurs out there that are not starting their own businesses. And I, I think that's a combination of things. We, we don't hold entrepreneurs or risk takers to any type of admiration. And there's a lot of regulations, both local, state, and federal, that really kind of make it difficult for somebody to start a business. So you see all of these impediments before you invest any capital. And that's uh, really kind of difficult to, uh, to take on. Yeah. Well, in a similar vein, what was the best mistake you ever made in terms of, I mean, there must have been something that you thought at the time was horrible and ended up really pushing you forward. I don't think there's one best. I think there's huge mistakes that I made all the way along and we learned. And in fact, this is an overstatement, but I say to a lot of people, don't go to college, <laughs> start your own business. You'll make mistakes and you'll learn more from your mistakes to the extent that since it's your money, you won't do that again. And you learn, so you learn faster. I, I made a lot of mistakes and I wasted a lot of money by making those uh, mistakes. But it's necessary if you want to stay in business and compete, if you want to stay up with your competition. You know, we had to do that. We always tried to be one step ahead of our competition. And I got to tell you, our competition was right on our heels. So uh, you uh, constantly were uh, doing things, and when they did not work, when they were making mistakes, you had to get rid of them fast. Now, I used to tell my office staff, I I said, you know, really, we only have to be right 51% of the time in order to be successful. But as I got more experience, I came to understand, you only have to be right a few percent of the time, maybe 5%, uh, and cut your mistakes early and uh, get rid of uh, the things that are not working or that are a disadvantage um, to uh, your operation. Yeah, that seems to be the mantra of venture capital now too, right? Where they invest in all these startups in the hopes that just if one of them takes off and becomes a unicorn, you get all your investments back. I Well, I've heard that. <laughs> do, you think, do you think the nature of innovation and entrepreneurship has changed though? We hear a lot now about how there's all these startups that like Uber, all these scooters that have descended like flies on all the major cities all funded by venture capital or money from the Gulf, and all these companies are not making any profit right now. Do you think this is a sustainable model? And, and is this much different? Is this very like categorically different than your own well, startup? It's categorically different because the money's there. Mm-hmm. 
when when we started our business, the money was really not there. The United States is so much more richer, and there uh, is uh, so much opportunity in some of these uh, companies that you just described that the attitude of putting money into them is really not reticent. It, it used to be very reticent. So the money was not there. So I'm 78 years old, and I'm still working, and there's I've never worked in such a, a hot economy as what we've got right now. So I think there's a, a lot of innovation, a lot of motivation to uh, start your own business, but it's not as big as it used to be. The difference between business closing and business opening used to be much wider than it is uh, right now. Well, and something you just said, you know, you mentioned college. Education is a major theme, especially early on in the book, where you talk about even going trick-or-treating in San Francisco and, you know, exposing your kids to people that aren't white Nebraskans for the first time. <laughs> right. And just kind of on and on. In each of these situations, you're learning something. Your kids are learning something. And now, I mean, I'm curious to see what you think. I mean, it seems to me now, having grown up, I mean, we're both 25 years old. The default is just to think, if you want to learn, you go to school. If you want to learn, you go to college, you go get a master's degree, and that's it. And obviously, the most successful people don't think that way. That's right. But I'm wondering if you think it's, if you think it's changed that over time, as more people have gotten college degrees, people have kind of defaulted to the way to success is just through a college degree, and we have to broaden our horizons a bit here and think, no, that's not the only way to success. Well, let me go back a little bit earlier to this idea. Gallup has done a lot of work on entrepreneurship. And they say it's a talent. You're either born with it or you're not. And it affects about 5% of the population. Hmm. And so when we talk about entrepreneurs being frustrated, it's a small part of our population. However, that's where all of our new jobs come from. So most economists agree that you have to have a 3% growth in gross national product every year just to create the new jobs from entrepreneurs starting new businesses that will absorb all the people coming into the job market. And if you don't, some people are not going to be employed. So uh, I don't think that part of it has changed. I think the concentration in recent years has been on technology, which is probably where it should be. And you ask me if I'm uh, you know, optimistic about the future. I think artificial intelligence will bring a, a, a lot of jobs to our society, jobs that we don't see now. So it's hard to think that you're going to get a lot of convenience out of the employment of artificial intelligence to know that there might be some jobs that, that come with that. And there might be new businesses that come with that. I'm happy you mentioned that because even when you were growing up, people said that there's too many brokers already, right? And don't go into it. And now, and now we hear all the time that, oh, there's a glut of lawyers or there's too many or journalism's a dying industry and everybody needs to learn to code because the programmers will inherit the earth. Do, do, <laughs> do you think that, I mean, is that just overly pessimistic? Like, do you, do you think that most of the job growth will be in this only this coding sector of the economy? Oh, heavens no. It'll be all in, it'll be in the services that really help the, the coding industry. It helps the computer industry, help the digital world. There, there will be a lot of jobs, like I said, that we don't see today that are going to come into being. But it's going to take somebody's imagination to really look and see and then say, oh, I want to take that risk. I think I can make a lot of money. I'll do this. And even though it's never been done before... And all of your friends and family are going to tell you that, oh, that's not going to work. You're stupid uh, to uh, try that. You lose your money. And all new businesses, I mean, eight out of 10 new businesses fail. Mm -hmm. So you got to get back up on your horse. I, I have a website, Entrepreneurs Create Jobs. And one of the entrepreneurs I interviewed said, you know, we're different because if we fail, we get back up on the horse and we try again. You have that motivation that comes with the talent. Switching tack a little bit here. Your family plays a huge role in the book, um, particularly your wife, Marlene. Yeah. Um, who kind of, I don't know if you could say, saves the company, but plays an important role at one point. <laughs> you need someone to come in and really help out. And she didn't want to do it, but she did it. 
she did not want to change, but she came to help us because we she she came to work for no pay. But then after she was there for a while, she got to know it. But the the part that re, she really contributed was to make the people that work for the company feel connected, feel like it was more of a family. For example, in the book, I uh, talk about her making a birthday cake for everybody on their birthday. And a lot of those people were really pleased that they got some recognition for them personally, some, something as simple as a birthday cake. So she created an environment that made people feel more connected. And it was, uh, you know, a very stressful environment. Uh, people were asked to do things that they've never been, uh, had never done, done before. And uh, we had a lot of pressure on us to get the work done every day because the market's open. You have to get the trades made. You have to get them posted. You have to take care of all that before you go home for the, at the end of the day. Yeah, and then your your sons also joined the company at one point too. And th th throughout the book, it just it struck me how much an extended family network really helps you out, and is a source of both money for funding for the company and just support in other ways. How much do you think the and we talk all the time on this podcast and at AEI, Tim Carney, for example, joined us about his book Alienated America about the kind of decaying state of the American family and civic life. Is that do you think that's also a maybe an underrated headwind toward this innovative entrepreneurial culture? I really don't know. I, I do think think about things that affect our culture, that affect the United States, but I don't go as deeply as you might think or where your question was going. So I know that the family is the basic unit of society, and without good families, our society will crumble. There's no doubt in my mind. I uh, and my wife always wanted to have a big, close family. I had uh, family was everything when I was growing up, and. As you grow up into manhood and say, well, I'm going to buy a house to start a family, you know, it all fits nice. So I don't think that the family has any less of a position in modern society than it did 2,000 years ago. I think that's always going to be the same. I think at one point you said you wanted to have a dozen kids until you moved to San Francisco <laughs> and, then, and then you changed your mind. Well, yeah, we went, my wife and I said when we first got married, we like big families and uh, we were going to have 12 kids. But then as we had one, it went down to 10. <laughs> As we had two, it went down to eight, you know, and finally the two numbers uh, kind of met. Well, think of, just think of all the baseball teams you could own if you had 12, 12 families. There's <laughs> at least three more teams right there. Yeah. So let's imagine someone calls you up. They're running for office. The president calls you up. Someone says, everyone's calling me and they're saying the American dream is dead. <laughs> what should I tell them? What would you say? The American dream is not dead. It's unique to the United States. It is American. I've been all over the world. The United States is a different place because of our free enterprise system. But it, it certainly is not dead. Uh, it, all you have to do is just look around a little bit and you'll find people with all kinds of ideas. What may be happening is that those people really don't feel comfortable employing those ideas because there's so many roadblocks when they want to get started. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. All right. Well, one last question to end it. What is, and this might just be a personal selfish question on my part, what is one piece of advice that you wish you heard when you were 25? I don't know what that one piece of advice would be, but I, I would give you a, a guess that it's think for yourself, be your own person, go your own direction, be moral and be legal, but do not be afraid to exercise your own judgment. Do your own thing. And don't worry about what other people think or say. All right. That's a good place to end it. Mr. Ricketts, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. As always, thank you for tuning in. And thank you especially to Mr. Ricketts for joining us. 
If you liked this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, and you can always send us feedback at banter at AEI.org. We'll see you again next week with another episode. Till then, this is Matt Winesett and Max Frost signing off. Mm-hmm.